As last week's winner, we're going to go with my pick, first of all, which is one of my favourite films of all time. I know I said that a lot, but I have a lot of favourite films. I have a lot of good love to give for horror, so I'm going to spread it like a tramp. So, (laughs) (laughs) my pick is 2017's Ghost Stories, written by the super lovely Andy Nyman and Jeremy Dyson. The story follows um, Professor Goodman, played by Andy Nyman also, uh, who also did The Professor in the Stage Show. Um, He is basically trying to debunk um, psychic abilities and, you know, pretty much saying that they're a load of crap, um, showing that things can be done by by manipulation. Your mind sees what it wants to see and such. And um, he grew up idolising somebody who did the same thing. And he has given three case files of stories he has been unable to debunk and set Goodman out to go and find resolutions to these stories. Um, it is based on the stage play that started in 2010. Um, I know this because it's on my dining room wall and it was our first ever Fright Fest and we went to see it on the last day, which rounded it off perfectly. Um, it's amazing. It is my favourite. Well, I say it is my favourite anthology. I do have... Another runner with this, which I was going to pick, which was going to be Twilight Zone, the movie. However, I figure this is more horror-orientated than Twilight Zone, the movie would be. There's far more horror elements in this than there would be to, say, the three segments you have in Twilight Zone that are quite horror-based. The stories themselves, if you take them individually, are outstanding. They're just like any sort of horror story you would get in the old style 70s armada books and such and they've done so well because I, I, I don't want to make comparisons to the stage play I think it's unfair to do that because I still don't want to ruin anything about the stage play as well because the film is kind of different from what you see in the show so I don't really want to talk about the show I don't think it's right to yeah so with you saying that i Ghost stories, I've had serious kind of... Oh, it's been really hard for me to like watch ghost stories without doing a direct comparison to the stage play, mm. which I love and I've seen, just like yourself, multiple times. And the differences, for me, I'm just like, oh, no, it don't work. But then I'm like, it probably does if I look at it objectively, but... I'm looking at it with a direct comparison. So this is, this is for me, like quite a hard film to watch mm. and judge objectively. It is one of the things, as you say, when it comes to some of the, some of the scares that work on better on stage. If we look at the end of the first section, the Paul Whitehouse security guard, the, the build-up works absolutely fine both on the stage and play, but I'm not, I say, all I want to say about the play version is that when you have the entity come towards him at the end of you sit in the audience, it's far more effective because you're there with something coming towards you than you have with him just being there with it attacking him at the end. Although, as I say, we don't want to constantly draw comparisons to the stage show. Therefore, when you actually look at it, it's a genuinely creepy ending to the actual segment. Mm. See, oh my gosh, I know we said we don't want to draw comparisons to this. And station. that's all we've done. <laughs> but, but a particular scene, I think the, the, the way it's set on, on this 
in the stage, like because he moves around a big factory. The setting is so clever that, like, I don't know. There's just it feels so much more claustrophobic and intense. But again, that doesn't take away from the fact that it is good. The thing that surprised me most watching it this time, because I think this is probably about my, I'd say about 15th time of watching Ghost Stories. I've watched it a lot of times. Um, Is how much, how clever the placement of things were. I've not even ran through the segments yet. I'm just going to quickly go through them. I'm not going to go into great detail because hopefully you've seen Ghost Stories. Um, But the first segment is Paul Whitehouse as a night watchman and um, he's got a troubled past with his daughter and one night he's on a watch and spooky things start happening in the next segment you've got um i forgot is simon rifkind is that right yes rifkind rifkind Rifkind, um who is out driving these uh lied about passing his test and he ends up crashing a car well he, he, he hits something and then his car stops and weird things start happening and in the third section you've got uh, Martin Freeman, whose wife is in hospital giving birth and spooky happenings start happening within their nursery. Um, the fourth segment is obviously Professor Goodman's resolve, as it were, um, his story and how he came to be embroiled in all this. Um, but, spoiler alert, the ending, you do find out that Professor Goodman is actually in a coma and this has all been in his head, which is done fucking superbly, both in the film and especially in the stage show. But what I noticed this time was, for example, when he's in the caravan talking to talking to Cameron, you see behind him medical equipment on the wall that would be adjacent to him if he were laying down, which I thought was brilliant. A little bits I picked up in this time. In the Night Watchman segment when he's uh, scanning past the mannequins, one of them's wearing a a surgical gown. I never noticed it before. There's so, there's so much to pick out. I noticed things that I never noticed before this time, watching it in a different kind of light. So, like, the numbers from the tunnel kind of appear a lot. Everywhere. The, I didn't realise. And then what I thought, like, was bizarre, like, the, the name of the pub. Oh, to me. okay. Nth number, yeah. yeah. I like never noticed none of that yeah. before. I noticed that before, yeah. There's yeah. like, I mean, it's so cleverly in a way we've been all through it. It's in the same way that Paul Paul Whitehouse tells Goodman that a professor is also the name of a punchy duty operator, mm-hmm. and it's not to, to late with Martin Freeman where he's saying about shotgun in the mouth. That's the way to do it, mm. and it's those little things, that little punch duty reference again later on that's just sprinkled throughout the stories to let you know that they're actually all interlinked in one part. So something I really like about the film is I think unlike a lot of films, it starts setting kind of the scene like before it's even started. So over the kind of you know the sponsorships or the people that are involved mm-hmm. in the film where you've got that dripping water. Yeah. Then you've got that panicked breathing. Yeah. And it's all but are you kind of like focused on that and then it does that ghost stories like like a jump scare ghost stories and it's just words and you're like, oh. <laughs> nothing's even happened which again I'm, I'm not going to make a comp- I don't want to make a comparison to the stage show but that is 
that's a lot of the same in the stage show, is it not? That's what, I'm not saying exactly what you've just said, but you have certain effects within the stage show that just draw you in. The thing about this as well is that all the stuff, <laughs> some anthologies, let's be real, some of, the sto- some of the stories can be tiresome. Like you get to a certain, in Twilight Zone, for example, um, obviously not talking about the notoriety of it, but I could go without the segment where Vic Morrow keeps going back. To me, that's not, to, do you know what I mean? I could do without that. That's uh, We've had picks in the films that we've had, cho- that we've chosen and, the audience has chosen that you do kind of go oh this isn't my favorite segment i'm not really into this segment however with ghost stories every story is consistently good so i like the stories in ghost stories but i wish that we didn't see what was shown in each segment so i really didn't care for the ghost girl in the first one to me, that kind of like that just looks bad. I really didn't like seeing what Simon had hit in his car what? or his ultimate kind of demise. I was like, I'd have rather just not seen it. I'd have been more scared by just hearing the voice. That creature's amazing. I just, I don't like it. Just a personal thing. Um, and with the um, Criddle story. I felt like that really went for a cheap jump scare with the wife coming forward. So even though I think the great, I think each one kind of threw something in that made me go, mm. I wouldn't agree, personally. I don't I don't think the Mike Priddle one needed the end. I think just having that comes what I don't think it looks particularly good. I've no problem with there being a jump scare at the end of it. I just don't think the actual character of his wife looks particularly impressive in that section which is a shame because that's probably up there that's the bits where they do it with the toy blocks stacking and the nappies going everywhere i think they're two of the best effects in the film when it comes to those kind of stuff the the stacking of the toys always reminds me of those toys you used to get where you used to push them underneath and they drop and then go back and spring back up when you let them go you like horses and stuff um can we just take a moment to talk about how amazing Martin Freeman is in this film? His character is fucking outstanding. I love the man. And I love this character. All the cast are outstanding. Alex yeah. Lorber as Simon. Paul Whitehouse. Paul Whitehouse. Absolutely. Paul Whitehouse as a grumpy working class night watchman is absolutely nailed. He absolutely gets that spot on. Did you know as well that in the segment with uh, Paul Whitehouse where... There's someone on the radio calls in called Betty. Yeah, that's Darren Brown, <laughs> right? Because I mean, Darren Brown obviously had a hand in the stage show. He helped with the, I want to say, creative process. I don't know what the term is. Consultant. I'm a jump board with the quality of the cast. I think, I, I, legitimately, I think everyone's really good in this film. I think there's like some like key said that so martin freeman i have never really been a bad fan of martin freeman and then suddenly like as he's got older i'm like wow you're like like i don't like his comedy but i like him when he's being serious i, I love martin like, freeman in anything to be honest 
but love it in this. And um, I think that moment when he just kind of like, when the, the two, him and Andy Nyman are sat on the hills and he kind of like just looks at him and then just goes, oh, and shoots himself in the head. I'm like, fuck me, that is amazing. The look he, the look he gives him before he shoots himself is kind of like, it's a terrified look. It's like a realisation of something. Like, like he's so scared he has to just off himself in that moment to stop whatever is going to happen. That's the, that's the feeling I took from that. I also think Alex Lothar as Simon. So I think, like, correct me if I'm wrong, up until the last time we saw Ghost Stories, I felt like the character of Simon completely changed from the, from the stage show to the I, film. Yeah, I, I think the last time we went to see it at the Lyric, was it Lyric we went Lyric, to? Lyric, yeah. Um, Simon's character was very much based on Alex Lothar, and I think that's Andy Nyman's yeah. son as well. Yeah. Who played it. But, um, but in the film. I have, I have no objection to that at all because I think the way it's played in the film is absolutely amazing. His his jitters and his paranoia and his panic, it's, it's brilliant. So initially when I first watched it, it irritated me. This time I was like, oh, you're really actually quite good at this. <laughs> really loved it. Um, and you know, what I also thought was like, it's one of my favourite scenes in the film and it's right at the beginning and it's with the psychic on the stage and he's talking to that woman and when he comes out and like exposes the psychic and that woman starts breaking down mm. i'm like fuck me girl like louise atkins i'm like my god like i genuinely believed like she'd lost her son and yeah. like that heart break that she was having I'm like this is awful i just need to suspension my second one of my other favorite scenes it's when um we're watching David. We're watching David Cameron, not David Cameron. <laughs> we don't watch. No David. one's watching David Cameron. We're watching Cameron's old video, mm. and he's talking to the old woman, and she's like, "She thinking herself last night, thinking about John Travolta." <laughs> <laughs> the um, the character of Cameron, I, I I don't think it's actually being said, but to me, he always reminds me of Maurice Gross. You know who um, was involved in the Enfield hauntings? That's who the character reminds me of, and I'm 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 guessing it's based on that. They're you know, they're all big fans of sort of this sort of stuff, especially like Jeremy Dyson's. So. We're making you sweep in. No, no, I, I, you can't. I I followed Jeremy Dyson's career for over twenty years. I'm I'm pretty sure that that is what that's based on because it just. Apart from he wanted to believe, he would he didn't run around debunking. I just meant the character. No, no, I thought you meant the kind of character, the kind of no, the kind look, of character rather than just the look of the it. The look and the sound, like I say, just looked like Maurice Gross to me. That was. I might be wrong, but that's what it came across as to me. I don't know what Maurice Gross is, so I really can't get your reference. Sorry. Did you Did you never watch um, Strange but True when you were younger? So, so you know the you know the Enfield Hauntings. Mm-hmm. Well, they were covered by uh, Strange but True with Michael Aspel. And um, Maurice Gross was this guy who came in to try and determine whether whether the girl was lying, basically, and he was overseeing everything. Look him up. Uh, you'll see. Look him up, and honestly, you'll you'll make that comparison too. I'll check him out. <laughs> I think the ending of the film and the play is fantastic. Mm-hmm. The way that like they just build his every story into 
everything they say is built in his mind to create mm. every story. I think that's genius. I think that the film is beautifully accompanied as well by him, Frank Illman's score. I'm saying it right, yeah? I don't know if I am, sorry. Um, that score is phenomenal. It's beautiful. I'd, I've had it in my ears before where I've been going around cleaning up and then a particular part will come on that's quite creepy and it'll just, like, shudder in my ear. I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. And I have to take it out because it, it's quite freaky to listen to in places. Gorgeous score. So, yeah, I, I could ramble on all day about ghost stories. If you If you want to come to me on Twitter and talk to me about it, feel free. You know, I, I, I'll go on with you for hours. That's absolutely fine. Um, but for now, to save time and to save everybody's ears, I will say that I do think you should pick Ghost Stories as your favourite anthology. On to my taste then. So this uh, this choice was quite simple for me, actually. Um, I've gone with the 1965 um, Amicus Productions, I believe it is, mm-hmm. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, Directed by Freddie Francis and um, written by Milton <coughs> Subotka. So it's it's a simple story of um, some guys getting on a train, sharing a carriage, and uh, this weird dude gets on, and he's, um, he's a fortune teller, basically, or he, something along the lines, he deals in that kind of world, and he gets them all to agree to have their tarot cards read, and we get to see individual stories of the five guys not the restaurant the people <laughs> um just the, just to be clear um yeah individual stories about what their future holds and if they can change their future mm. so it's got a ridiculous cast but that's a ridiculous i'm just going to say two names because these are like horror icons, legends, you, you can't, you might add to the, we can't get any better than these. We've got Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. And then we've got, which I think is quite amazing, Donald Sutherland sneaking in there. Little Donald Sutherland. You've also got Roy, I'm the reason you can't smoke in Pub's Castle. Is he the reason? Yeah. They had a, fo- a whole foundation started in his name to stop smoking, uh, to stop smoking in public places and as a result eventually stop smoking in pubs which is interesting because just jumping ahead like in Roy Castle's segment he buys some cigarettes of a cigarette girl and he puts them directly in his pocket and that was purely like the reason he did that is purely because he doesn't smoke huh. and he didn't want to like hold on to them or like make it look like he was going to have them so he's like yep done good um, lad Good lad, good lad. And so, yeah, Dr. Terror's House of Horror, mm. five individual stories. All the stories are really quite short, which I think is good, because sometimes I think in anthologies, like, they can stretch out a little bit. Um, but these are quite short, quite to the point, and they kind of, like, work on, like, I don't know, like, typical kind of horror stories, like yeah. werewolf, killer plan, <laughs> vampire. Um, there's a voodoo crawling hand oh the crawling hand yeah casual racism (laughs) so it's a product of its time of course (laughs) Um, and yes there are some problematic moments within the film Mm -hmm. but I 
when you look back at a lot of old horror films, there's going to be problematic moments because, as I say, it's a product of its time. I hope that, you know, that... Yeah, it's not it's not big, it's not clever, but... Yeah, it's it's not. We're, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna speak of that the film as a horror film rather than the time and place and the sociological studies and things that people far more qualified to speak than us would uh, would discuss. I mean, I don't like the fact that you're questioning my kind of ability to speak about things, Chris. Uh, Ooh. But no, um, you're right. It's it's definitely. Although I have made quite a few notes about <laughs> some things, um, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Right. So I think for ease, if we just chronologically kind of like go through it, so we get the guys, me, Doctor Terror. Um, you know, I will. I'm, I'm going to be honest when I pick certain things out. I think Peter Cushing's amazing. Um, didn't realise you were German for quite a while, and then didn't. Realise whether he were actually German or like Italian or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that accent a little bit. Did you notice that his eyebrows were out of control? Crazy eyebrows. <laughs> so what I like about this is it's a really kind of authentic way to bring the characters together. Mm. You know, it's not like it's not a weird reason why they'd be together. Yeah, like they got the nice authentic way, and the, I like the wraparound as well because. Yes, we keep coming back to it, but each time we come back, it's almost like you learn a little bit more about each character as a new character is going to get their story told. And Christopher Lee is a complete prick when he gets on that trip. <laughs> His level of sass in this film is phenomenal. I love how bitchy he is. He's, he's terrible. Yeah. Um, so the first section is the werewolf section, and we've got um, Jim Dawson played by Neil McCallum, who's going back to his old family home um, he used to own, or their family used to own. It's been in there for centuries because the new owner wants some work done. And while we're there, he discovers this coffin in the cellar. And from that identifying the coffin, he knows it's, it's somebody who years and years and years ago claimed that the house belonged to him. Um, but he got killed by the family, and as he died, he said... I'm going to come back and kill the owner of this house and reclaim what's mine. So you're like, oh, great. Um, we've got some really campy performances from <laughs> housekeepers. Um, so they, they're so campy. Do you want to stay in after dark? <laughs> we don't go out after dark. <laughs> and then we've got the housekeeper, like the, sorry, the owner of the house, and she's like, pretty cool. You know, she's not really disturbed by anything that's going on. There's this werewolf that comes out, it kills one of the housemates. She's like, "Yeah, well, this this shit happens." He's like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get this wolf, and I'm gonna kill it." Um, and he melts down a cross, and then this wolf escapes. I have, I have an issue with the cross melting because I understand. Yes, he wants some, he needs to melt down silver, and he's got this big cross. He wants to turn it melt down. Silver melts around about 900 degrees Celsius. Unless he's got a blast furnace in his back garden. I'm not sure how he's turning it into bullets. Mercer's packing up all this stuff now. He's putting it away what? and he's walking out of his own house. Let me ask you a question, Chris. Any evidence that there wasn't a blast furnace? No, but I... 
If you if you I could suspend I could suspend disbelief that there's werewolves running around, but not that he's got a blast furnace in his back garden. I mean, it's all good days. Who knows what they've got? He's been there for centuries. Anyway, he melts it down, and then he goes to shoot this werewolf, which I think, quite cleverly, they don't try and, like, create a werewolf monster. They just mm. use a dog, um, which I think is quite clever. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just waiting for more dog talk to come up later on, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Please carry on. Please carry on. Although... They're... There is the moment when it looks like they just... Fr- is it this section where it looks like they just throw the dog across the room? I'm not sure. There is... I can't remember whether it's this section or later on where it looks like they just dropped the dog in. <laughs> dropped the dog in. I'm not sure. I don't recall that. Anyway, it's awesome because he's like, oh my God, like he shoots this dog and he's still the billet. So he's like, oh my God, I don't get why it's not dead. And then, then the, the owner of the house turns around and she goes, do you mean the ears? And she's dropping them in around and you're like, what? What? Dun, dun, dun. What is going on here? And then she drops the bombshell that actually is not coming back to kill the owner of the house, but a descendant of mm. the previous owners, which is what he is, and he's her husband. So I think that's quite a fun story. I think it's got a nice twist, <clears throat> which, you know, first time watching, I don't think it really gives it away. No. The twist. Which I think is good. Like normally, like they, like they focus. There's a lot of red herrings where they focus on the weird kind of housekeepers that make you go them to a trouble. But they're not. They're just normal people. Um, then we jump onto. We've got the second story, which I quite enjoy, which is the creepy plant. It's a vine. Right. And this. <laughs> this segment. Wait. A couple of weeks ago, we happened to have watched Dr. Terror's House of Horrors because it were on TV. Um, and then, obviously, you picked it for this. So we rewatched it again out of commitment. Cause, I mean, I love the film anyway. The, in case anyone didn't know, the anthology episode is what I wish isn't over because I've got so many anthology films that I love. And Dr. Terror's is one of them. Um, but in this segment, <laughs> the dog is not a barking dog. Somebody is doing the voice of a barking dog and I can't get over it. And so, yeah, I mean, I watched it this time and I went, big dog's not barking. No, it's a big bark. And it's an annoying fake dog bark. It's not like your good dog bark, your good dog barking that you do. <laughs> See? Sorry about that, everyone. Um, that's a real dog. No, um, yeah, I'm like, that's a fake dog bark. So yeah. when the dog died, I was like, well, thank God, because I can't listen to barking anymore. Um, what I did find when the dog died was it just went quiet. Like, there were no yelping or anything, because obviously whoever would do the bark couldn't yelp. Um, but, but, you know, the dog were dead. Um, what I did like about this one is, first of all, the little kid wasn't annoying. I actually mm. thought she was quite good. There were some cool moments, like when the professors sat in and the plants creeping in through the bedroom to yeah. attack him. You're like, yeah, that looks quite good. Like, for, for 1965, I'm quite enjoying that. <laughs> I thought it was funny when um, the second professor comes to the house and then he tries to leave and the plants attack him and then they start whacking window and it cuts to the like the two people who own the house. And I've never seen two calmer people in my entire life. Thank you. I said exactly the same. But we're, get, we're getting attacked by vines. That's yeah. okay. That's perfectly fine. 
took a while for it to clock and think, oh no, shit, I've got a daughter that I need to get. <laughs> Quick. Uh, but this, I think this segment's, you know, he's got quite a few comedic aspects. Yes, let's it call it. What I do like is when he works out that they're afraid of fire to get away, mm. and he says to the people, um, like before he goes, he goes, if these plants ever um, lose this fear of fire, um, we're all dead, or the world will come to an end, or something. And he gets out, and then he goes to car, and husband and wife, husband turns around to wife, and he goes, we're safe. We'll make it through this, and then it cuts to plants going up to fire grade. Uh, bitch, we can put this up. <laughs> and you're like, oh shit, they're dead. <laughs> it's the way the leaves are going. Pat, pat, pat. I kept getting distracted because the, the other scientist is M in the Bond movies. Yeah, yeah. So I kept expecting the guy, like, this could be the end of the world, 007. <laughs> It's such an iconic role, I'm sorry, I can't watch him in anything and not go, that's him. No one would blame you. So then we've got the third section, which is the voodoo section. I'm going to start off by saying, yes, there is some problematic moments in this, but Murray Castle decides to do a West Indian accent, obviously not realising where West India is. <laughs> it's not a West Indian accent that he does. It comes across sound like a poo. <laughs> We're wishing so, itself is problematic. From the symptoms. I honestly thought you meant Apu as in no. number two there. What? <laughs> no, no. Well, both, but yeah. I mean, to be fair, I actually quite like Roy Castle. I love him. I like Roy Castle anyway. He's a great yeah, man. Yeah, he's a good man. Well, he yeah. was a good man, bless him. But especially like in the session, that segment, I think he's got like a nice kind of mix of like being a bit cheeky, but... Yeah, his banter in the carriage is the most humorous. Yes. He, throughout the film, is obviously the, the comic release. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so his story is his band go off to West Indies. They're going to He kind of doesn't stumble upon it, purposely goes out of his way to watch this kind of voodoo ritual that's going on yeah. and decides that he's going to kill their music. Now, for me, this is like a full-on kind of perfect example of privilege. Yep. Like, white privilege. He's literally got no respect for their culture, their beliefs, and he really doesn't care. And he does still... And and then it also, like, highlights, like, appropriation as well, because he's going to steal what's theirs and try and bring it into... I'm going to say Western culture, but then that feels confusing because he's in West Indies, but you know what I mean, into, like, Western culture. Yeah. Despite... They've asked him not to because, you know, it's going against one of their... I'm going to say gods, but I'm not sure there are gods in... It, it is. Did you say it's a god? It is a god, yeah. Yeah, but I think that I think it's more kind of spirits than gods, surely. Well, um, it depends who, like, who's written this, doesn't it? Because if, it, if it's not somebody who's au fait with these kinds of things, then they're probably just generalising. I mean, on top of the approach, there's also Western culture kind of clash where, what? let's face it, they approach him to say don't use our music. He didn't apologise. He didn't go... His first instinct is go, look, we can make a lot of money off this. Mm. This is capitalism versus this kind of whole culture yeah. kind of ideal. Yeah. So, the, and then, like, the fact that he still takes it over and he still produces it. And then, like, just, like, again, that kind of... Like, he don't really care about anyone else's kind of 
believes because like he's got these they've recreated the mask of uh, voodoo god uh, and the first thing he does is like stick his head in and all yeah. the white oh this is so funny Dur- during the scene where where he comes back and plays the music and they have a mini tornado in the uh, in the nightclub you think that would probably be enough to go no you know what I probably won't play that again <laughs> It might even be enough for him to go, oh, maybe we should stop playing while this mini tornado is going on. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't. Anyway, he freaks out and he goes home and he's right to freak out because we get one of the uh, kind of members of the voodoo kind of religion, the tribe that, that we're celebrating, coming to his house to steal the music. But I do like about this is the fact that he don't fight back, he just passes out. <laughs> What if you scared, if you're scared stupid? Then yeah, you probably would pass out. It's nice that they managed not to do a kind of savage, just kill him kind of thing because he didn't do anything. He passed out. All he does is he lifts, up, he takes the music, and he just leaves. It's, a, le- just walk- it's a lesson, isn't it? He just walks out the door. Yeah, they it's haven't got. Him a lesson. They haven't gone. Are oh, these savages will kill people when they attack? They he's just gone. No, he's like, look, you're your lesson now, and he just leaves and goes. Yeah. Which is nice that they've not. They decided not to go down that route, especially. As you say, with everything else that's in the uh, segment. And we're now entering uh, phase two favourite segments. So the last two segments, yeah. So we've got the Christopher Lee segment, which, again, is fantastic. The disembodied hand segment, Mm -hmm. where Christopher is a fucking brutal art critic who's just got a problem with a particular artist and just likes to criticise him. So that artist decides to play a trick on Lee while he's got a bunch of people around him and shows him some artwork that Christopher Lee's like, this is fabulous, this is what real art is, and then they bring out this chimpanzee. Also, like to point out, chimpanzees are not toys, they are belong in the wild, and they shouldn't be used in movies going forward. And they are not good artists. So, Christopher Lee then goes, oh, like, you kind of ruined my career a little bit, so um, I'm going to get revenge on you, so he runs the artist over, and like, runs his hand over, so his hand has to be amputated. So then the artist can't ever paint again, so he tops himself. Fair dues, that's what, you, that's what happens. So then the hand goes, do you know what? You'll ruin my artist man's life. So, <laughs> so then the hand comes for Christopher Lee, taunts it, packs him, Lee thinks he's got rid of it, and then ultimately the, like he can't get rid of this disembodied hand. He has a car crash, and what does he lose? His vision! Yes. What a twist! Art critic again. The most horrifying thing in this segment is the state of Christopher Lee's carpet. When was the last time you ran a Hoover over that thing? And that massive blue fireplace oh, he has. That fucking blue! I hate that blue fireplace. It reminds me of my bedroom carpet. That's why. That's why I hate it. But yeah, I think that's a fun section. It's a great I section. Last... Yeah. As yeah. you say, say his bitchiness and just his general just sarkiness the whole way through it. Is absolutely great. I'm not sure who's hurt him. What he's had happened to him in the past. And it is, it's not, I, think, I mean, I, I've not, I, I don't think I've probably seen as many Christopher Lee films as I should, but it's nice to see him out of makeup and out of a monster role and just being him. Not him, but, you know, a normal everyday I, character. I kind of think that's what it was like in real life. Do you mm. Yeah. I like that. Um, and then the last section is the Donald Sutherland section. I like this section. Yeah. Um, he comes home, he's married this woman. Um, turns out 
Oh, they move, I think they move into a village uh, with this woman. Turns out she's a vampire and he's a doctor. No more relationship. Um, <laughs> and there's another doctor in the village and this doctor tells Donald Sutherland, your wife's a vampire and you need to kill her because she's a vampire. So he does. And then when the police come and he tries to explain, oh, she's a vampire, the doctor, Dr. Blake will tell you. And Dr. Blake comes in and he's like, oh my God, what are you on about? You're crazy. Like, why would I say this? And then Sutherland's like, oh my God, like, I'm going to get arrested for murder. And he, he goes. And then Dr. Blake turns to camera and then goes, this town is big enough for two doctors. Or oh, vampires. vampires. <laughs> and there's a bar. Brilliant segment. I love, I love Donald, Donald Sutherland. Yeah. He's brilliant. I've, I don't think I've ever seen a bad Donald Sutherland role in anything he's ever done. Just as a... By the way, I understand he's going, oh, no, Doctor will back me up. At what, at what stage do we look at this and go, well, uh, a reasonable defence to murder is going, my wife's a vampire. He'll agree, he'll agree with me. We see that in front of the old Bailey all the time. <laughs> I do question a section in this segment. The fact that the police officer and everyone leave and they just shut down the leave. Yeah. The and they left him behind what? as well, so he could have fiddled with anything. There was no CSI crap going on there at all. No, if you want to leave her, she's just left. And then we get to the, the final, because after each story, it presents them the card to set, can you change the future? And they all get the death card. Mm. And then he very quickly draws five, Dr. Terror draws four cards for himself, turns it over, death card, and they're like, who even are you? And he's like, have you not worked this out yet? Mm. And he's deaf. And then the train stops and they get off and they're all dead. Back in the day when I used to watch this with my nanan, because um, for some reason it used to be on ITV like all the time on a Sunday night when my nanan and the baby sitting there. And when we watched it, that bit at the end where he turns around, he's got a skeleton face, is not as scary as I remember it. <laughs> I remember no, it's funny. It is funny. Um, but, you know, I think I think overall that the, the five segments are really good. The wraparound mm. is really, really good. It all feels kind of authentic. Yeah. And they all die together. It's, it makes sense as a story. Yeah. Um. Obviously, I think everyone's really good in it, uh, but I love Peter Cushing. I think he's fantastic. Yes. And just the him, just the him, this film should be the number one anthology from this episode. Okay, so now it is my choice for winning film. I'm not even going to say choice for the film that may win. My choice of the film that will win. Someone's confident. I am very confident. When you hear my pick, you'll know I am very confident. What do I? What do I bring? What do I bring every week to this podcast? I bring arrogance. I bring arrogance. I do. I bring a sense of style, decorum. Most importantly, I bring the fun, and that is what I am bringing today with 2007's Michael Doherty's Trick or Treat. No, I'll wait for a round of applause, it's fine. <laughs> Everyone at home listening on the podcast will be applauding. Standing ovation. I may say, previous award nominee, Michael Doherty, as he was also the director of one of our picks for best Christmas horror in Krampus. Mm. Can, can I just point out, though, he did also co-write Urban Legends Bloody Mary. Oh! 
I I actually don't mind Urban Legends, oh, Bloody Mary. Fuck off. I go I go that I go that three stars on Letterboxd. Thank you very much. Every day there's like another bit of information that leads me closer and closer to divorce. <laughs> so let's get let's get let's break this down. Break it down now. Break it down. As I say, this my pick is for the shift and it is a throwback. It's creep show, it's old comic book, weekly or monthly anthology horror. That and that's the whole tone of it. You look at the colours, you look at the way the thing's shot, it's basically a comic book brought to life. I say nice short, snappy segments. The beauty of this one as well is that all the segments run through each other. Not in the same way that ghost stories is cleverly interlinked because it doesn't aim for that lofty ambition and the wraparound doesn't need everything to be that tight. But all those little bits and pieces and characters run through each other the whole way through just so you're watching, as you're watching Dylan Baker as a serial killer stalk the streets and then you'll have a pride of werewolves walk past him because they are also part of the film. We have everything we need here. We have werewolves. We have serial killers. We have vampire-ish. We have a a load of obnoxious brats, which I'm sure Mercer particularly loves. And in Sam, we have an absolute horror icon. We do. And then we also have the acting talent. As I said, the aforementioned Dylan Baker, Brian Cox, Anna Paquin, Leslie Bibb. Dylan Baker is a serial killer, yeah? He is. He's also in CSI. Forever will be Dirty Pedo from Happiness for me. Forever. Forever. That he may be, but in this, he is also principal slash serial killer. <laughs> I'd say the whole, the whole thing is just not meant to be taken seriously. For me, this is, in the same way I say that Creepshow was a movie you put on at Halloween that you can actually watch with the whole family. It may be bloody, it may be gory, although not that much, to be fair, in this. But it's a film that, if I sit at home with folks at Halloween and go, oh, let's put a Halloween film on, this would be the one that I know that everyone could get on board with. Mm. You don't actually, in this one, see anybody die. Like, there's no real on-screen death. Even Leslie Bibb at the start, she's covered up when he kills her. When the only one you really see is you see Dylan Baker when he kills the woman in the street when he's a vampire because he he bites into her neck and he leaves her dead on the floor. Ah, yeah. Don't you also see him get ripped apart by Anna Paquin? No. No, the last. Yeah, because the last thing you really see is her tearing off her skin, revealing the werewolf body, and then howling, and then it cuts. Which I have a problem with the tearing off the skin. Because how did they get that back on? They clearly just grow new skin. They just shed. What happened? They're like dogs. They just shed. And then there's just human skin underneath. They're taking liberties with that. Anna Paquin, she's just, she runs the whole gamut. She know, that's probably how she knew that he wasn't a vampire. Because she she's also in true, she's in true blood. Therefore, she knows the vampire when she sees one. <laughs> Thoughts? Anyone, <laughs> anyone else? <laughs> I am... Um... It's hard with Trick or Treat, because we've said this before we started recording, it's hard to really distinguish them into segments purely because of how they run with each other. 
you're dependent upon one part of the story that you will totally need in the second part of the story. I, I do think the twist with... I'm, I'm sorry, I forget his name. Dylan. Dylan Baker. Dylan Baker. I do think the twist with him is fantastic when it looks like he's going to actually kill his child and then takes him to the basement and it's like, oh, baby's first head. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to, if you want to break them down piece by piece, we have that one. So basically we have Dylan Baker, who's Stephen. He is the high school principal, small town high school principal. Mm-hmm. And he is also, as we find out, a serial killer as he is desperately trying to dispose of a body in his back garden that just won't stay dead. Yeah. Nice, loads of nice little bits. I say just loads of nice light-hearted comedy touches as much as killing a kid can be. you got Brian Cox as the cranky neighbour next door. you got the body that just won't stay dead. And then, as you say, you got that nice twist at the end of it. Mm. Yeah, I think what's nice about um, the interlinking stories is when he's got that body in the grave and he's kicking it and the, bag, the arm rips out, you can see it's wearing a clown outfit which obviously isn't Charlie who went to the house. Yeah. But then later on, when we see, when we go to Greg's story or Brian Cox's story, and the three trick-or-treaters come, mm. that's the kid who's dead next door. I didn't pick up on so that. Own outfit. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's loads of those little, I'd say everything, not as clever, I'd say not as clever as Ghost Stories and it's need to be, but... I say those nice little touches where they say when the stories run past each other. Mm. I say in the same way that we have that wraparound where Leslie, we we end where we started with Leslie Bibb coming back home yeah. and uh, blowing out the pumpkin and seeing everyone from the cast on the street before we end up with her nice little uh, death scene. There, there are two, throughout these anthologies that we've picked and that other people have picked for us, there are two segments that kind of break my heart just a little bit. I mean, actually, sorry, three, because in Ghost Stories, um, with the whole tunnel thing, breaks my heart. But in Trick or Treat, the story about the kids on the school bus is horrible. I mean, but again, if you're taking technicalities into it, who's not going to realise that about nine kids have gone... Six kids, sorry, six kids? Something like that, yeah. Have just gone missing. Just disappeared into oblivion. I guess the story is because the parents wanted it to happen, so if they don't report it, who's going to know? Mm, I guess. Exactly, and just make it look like an accident. Oh no, we were driving out and then they stole the bus and they crashed it off of the quarry and all died. But if it had gone according to plan, then when they dragged this school bus up, they'll have said, hang on, why are all these kids chains at seats? But they didn't drag the school bus up. The school bus is still in there. I said if they had if the, if it had gone according to plan and they'd gone oh this is an accident they'd have been like well why were the kids strapped to the seat uh, because I don't think the plan was to report it fine pick apart pick apart, pick apart the logic of the the stories I know what's going on here leaving, leaving that one aside it also features one of our favourite bodily injury shots oh. as well yeah. Brian Cox having his Achilles tendon cut, which really, really, I imagine, hurts. And apparently, if that happens to you, it cannot be repaired. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. Then what do you do? What oh, What do you do? Just flop around, I imagine. Oh. 
It's going through me just thinking about it. Are you sure it can't be repaired? I remember look. I'm sure I looked this up at one point to see how bad an injury it is, and I'm pretty sure that when that snapped, they can't actually you can't actually repair that tendon. <sighs> so just not that we're a medical show or anything, but <laughs> I broke my leg and it were fixed in a position for like nearly two years. Um, I lost kind of movement in my ankle, and they said to me the only way they could do it is by splitting my Achilles tendon. Oh. Maybe they mean cutting down it rather than slicing it actually clean through it. Oh, I don't know because I didn't have it done. Would have meant more time I'm, off work. I'm, <laughs> sh- I'm sure a medical expert will come back to us and say whether this is or not true. But in any case, I imagine it really fucking hurts when you have that sliced. I'm totally off subject, but maybe we should do a whole uh, episode on how John broke his leg once and ended up with pins in his leg for nearly two years and how gross it was. As gross as Anna Paquin ripping her skin off and being a werewolf. Yeah, he used to make me try and smell his pads. <laughs> yes, that is quite gross. I feel we're getting sidetracked somewhat away from... Carry on. Focusing back on, <laughs> focusing back on Trick or Treat. I know Mercer hates child actors, but... I'm sure he's happy then. They got their comeuppance in the section with the school bus where they go down to try to actually summon them. Before you say what you're going to say, Mercer, I'm just going to say to you, whilst we were watching this, I said you wouldn't have been bothered by these kids. I didn't think you'd find these kids that annoying. All I can say is thank God for Britt McKillop as the bitchy girl because their mother kids did that one boy. I don't know where we were um Schrader. Oh blah, 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 blah. what was his accent? I don't know where we were from. He did my head in. But she as that bitchy girl completely kind of saved that group of kids. And I hated Rhonda when she first came on, I was like, oh my God, this is such a caricature. But when 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 the pranks I hate kids. Kids are so cruel. Uh-huh. And they're that in real life, like what they did to that girl, like the kids do it in real life, and I hated it. And I hated that Macy bitch, Sarah. I know she's only a child, but she's <laughs> awful, 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 awful. But yeah, I didn't really like any of the kids. That I, and but then that, like, like Rhonda grew on me. Like I thought she kind of developed quite well in the short period of time, and mm. she was quite, she was really good. And I think it were that scene. I just think is awesome when. When the school kids do come back, the zombie kids, and they run and they're at the gate, and they're like, open up, open up, and she kind of like just takes them out, presses them again, and then just a little wave to her, and you're like, yes, girl, yes. <laughs> so, like, that's my favourite section of the entire of the film, the school kids one, because yeah. I hate it. I love it. It is very much a film where people get their comeuppance, so the bus driver gets his, those bullying kids get theirs. The serial killer gets his. Gets his. Not really much happens to Anna Paquin. No, because to be fair, the the actual people they're picking off. I mean, we see. I feel sorry for the guy who's just working in the store because he's he's done nothing. But Dylan Baker has clearly got it coming, got it coming to him because he's acting as a predator towards her, mm. where she's actually, as she says, she's actually doing that slow, letting him come to her rather than the other way around. Yeah. I think the werewolf transformation is really good. I know you've got an issue with them losing the skin. Yeah. But about any werewolf, like, in reality, 
every werewolf that transform, the skin's got to go somewhere. Yeah, exactly. It's a, you can't if you, you can't start picking apart the fact. That, oh no, where where does their skin go? Because that's the whole thing with werewolves. If we're going to start picking that apart, then we're in trouble. But as you say, it is a really good transformation scene. It is very visceral. We went through body horror the other week. And it's not. It's it's rare. Normally they just they just there and they just bits just start splitting open as they turn into werewolf. If you did have a werewolf growing underneath yourself, the pressure and need to rip your skin off probably would cause you to start ripping parts of yourself off. I do have one one slight problem with the werewolf scene which is when she kind of like comes into her and she's like yeah I'm going to kill this guy this is who I'm going to lose my werewolf virginity to and they all start dancing like it's just an obligatory like tit shot yeah and there's been nothing like this throughout the entire film and I, I don't know why we needed it maybe it's a throwback to I don't know that class those classic 70s 80s <laughs> Campy horrors, possibly. Constantly have tits. Let's face, yeah, they they don't constantly have tits for no, absolutely no reason. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of nods to other horror films within this anthology. Um, I know what he did last summer, in terms of running up the alley. In one scene, you got Cry Little Sister playing in the background from Lost Boys. I happen to think that Sam has the facial structure of the Gremlin from Twilight Zone. Oh. I think he looks like Satan's little helper. Um, can I just... Sorry, Chris, I know this is your choice, but that Sam reveal is, like, the worst reveal ever. He I don't... Better, uh, that, I, I don't agree that it is. I, I think it's... Because he's been so cute the whole way through when you've seen him. It, it's just like a little demon. I adore it. I, I don't think there's anything wrong no, with Sam's I've, face. I've, I've no I have no problem with the reveal, but I agree... The character does look better with the sack. I think that is a much stronger look. And if I, if I'd have been perfectly happy if they hadn't have done the reveal, but I don't have any issue with it. Just what? Just before I wrap up as well, do you need to give? Just saying about soundtracks on Ghost Stories, the soundtrack on here is also makes that yeah. whole kind of classic fun house kind of creep show throwback from Douglas Pipes. Who also did the Krampus soundtrack as well, which go. is also very strong. And also, bizarrely, did another one of my recent favourite films that hopefully I'll get to talk about at some point. The Babysitter oh. also did a soundtrack for that. There you go. Hopefully, at some point, we'll do Best Babysitter Horrors, so I'll get to, oh, I've got wha- two, two I'll get to wax on lyrically for hours on that. Honestly, now that you've just revealed what your favourite babysitter film is, I don't think we should ever do a favourite <laughs> babysitter film. <laughs> Jesus. Don't worry, we'll do we'll do favourite Samara Weaving. It is Samara Weaving, isn't it? Samara Weaving. We'll do his favourite Samara Weaving. Oh my god, I can't think. Mayhem, ready or not, the babysitter. <laughs> She's so good. She is so good. Back to this, to wrap this up. What more do you need? A perfect Halloween film. I know obviously we're going for anthologies, but it's Halloween slash anthology. It's got great monsters, it's got a great soundtrack, it looks stunning. It's just so, so much fun. And is that not what we want? If that's not what we want, then I don't know why we're bothering. And that is why Trick or Treat, best anthology. I thank you. Before we go into our last film, um, I'm going to hand you over to Mercer. 
so we can give you some feedback. I kind of feel like um, like the weather girl. <laughs> I mean, like, oh, that person who stood with iPad in a corner after, like, a debate on TV, it's like, uh, I've had any feedback. Um, Stephen Mullerhead or whatever, that's who I am. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, guys. Uh, so, yeah, we did have some feedback this time. Um, so we asked for people's um, favourite anthology horror movies. Uh, we got some legitimate suggestions. We also got some that I thought were quite funny. Um, so when uh, uh, on Facebook, um, Joel Schaefer come back to us. Um, his favourite horror anthology is his dating life. <laughs> um, we also had from Facebook uh, John Copen, who said he's going to have to go with the original Creep Show. Nice. And the 1972 Tales from the Crypt. Ooh, we asked for one. Five. Um, <laughs> does this five? We all, we all beat that. Beat that? I don't know why I said beat that. <laughs> I didn't beat anything um, to any of these comments. <laughs> um, oh, I know why I said it. Because Andrew Gray actually said ABCs of Death narrowly beats that trick or treat. Mmm, mm, competition. Mm. Um, Sean Gilmartin, you'll like this one, Fair. He's like, mm, it's not an anthology. I think it is. Uh, but Twilight Zone is all oh. I can think of. What you think of? It <laughs> pains me. Cool. We had uh, some Facebook feedback as well. Not Facebook, because I've just done Facebook. What's <laughs> the other thing? Watch. Um, not watch. News. Twitter. But we had Nat. Nat came in with Dead of Night, Creeper, a good framing device, and the best possessed ventriloquist dumber story in the business. Hmm. Uh, Scared Sheepless, that's that Caitlin, said probably Vault of Horror in terms of just personal affection for it. But Dead of Night and, of course, ghost stories are brilliant. Uh, yep, Mitch Bane or Holes but Mitch, no. What's that? What is it? It's who, who, else, who but, else but Mitch, not whole but Mitch. And he came in and said he has a very strong affinity for Southbound for some reason. I like Southbound. I I'm like throwing Southbound. that out there. So yeah, we had, we, had, we had quite a few. We had quite a few suggestions. So I've done what I like to do, which is I just totted up the top five. Um, what I did do is take out two of the films because they were films that we covered. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would tell you that if we had done the top five, including them, you would have had a fifth place entry fair, and Chris would have had a first place entry. Mm. Quite upsetting for us. Yes. Taking the pay, we got um, we have Southbound in fifth place, Dead of Night in fourth, Creepshow in third, <laughs> Creepshow two in second, but the public voted. And the fourth film that we're discussing today is Tales from the Crypt, 1972. Hmm. Hmm. Which none of us had seen before. Mm-hmm. That is true. I thought I had seen it until I watched it and then went, oh. So, yeah, Tales from the Crypt. Um, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Cannot believe, as with Unknown Origin that it's taken me this long to watch it. It was great. A really odd framing device to get them in there in the first place. 
Because they're all as as we as we go along, we go through their individual tales. We find out they're all heading off to different places. Yet they've all just happened to pop into the local. They said they felt drawn to it, and he asked them, "Why have you come in here?" They said, "We can't explain it. We were just drawn to it." So that explains why they're all in suits going through caves, because that really did make sense to me. Or yeah. like a bit dressed up, aren't you, for a cave tour? Regardless of the wraparound, I think these are some of the best anthology stories that certainly I've seen. And as much as my love for Dr. Terror is big, I do feel this outshines them a tiny little bit. Maybe not... Ma- genuinely, maybe not the end... Not the end segment, because that goes on for far too long. But Joan Collins' segment on its own is outstanding. Let's talk Let's talk these segments then. So, well, just briefly. So, Joan Collins is the one where she's killed her husband, essentially, for the life insurance policy, as we find out, as she, keep, as she goes and gets out of the safe after she's killed him. Probably want to check and make sure he's got one before you kill him. <laughs> but... And just so happens, unfortunately, they kill him on the same night that there is a homicidal maniac on the loose. Escaped from the local mental institution, because of course. What's convenient is her daughter's desperate to stay up for Santa Claus, mm-hmm. and this dude's dressed as Santa. The daughter's a Christmas carol. Yes, she is. <laughs> she is. She's called Carol. Oh. Mm. Thank you. I'll be here all week. <laughs> Literally, I've got no fucking else right to go. This is going to sound terrible, but I never really thought Joan Collins was an actress. I, I like I know she acts, but I only know her in Dynasty or whichever it were. Where, where, she's, where she's acting playing, in it. Yeah, but where she's just playing a bitch, and it feels like she's just like image that John Collins presents of herself. Like, I didn't realise there were anything pre-Dynaster. Okay. Um, so when I saw her in this, I was, like, pleasantly surprised. She's a good actress. What makes her good is, if you kind of, like, look at her performance in full, she doesn't actually say that much. I think it's harder to, for actors, sometimes, I think, to give, like, believable performance if they're not, like, reacting to another character or when they're having to emote everything. Mm. Uh, I think that's quite cool. I love how cold she was as well, like when she killed her husband and stuff. Like, just the way she, like, was normal. Like, she went upstairs to check on her daughter and stuff. It, like, it didn't really... She was like a sociopath or I, a psychopath. I happened to say to Chris that I thought she were, that she'd planned out the death of her husband quite well, but... Chris soon tore that down. Went, no, actually. She didn't put anything down. <laughs> She's leaving fingerprints all over the place. She's cleaning the blood and then dragging him across the carpet. See, I think she made a big error. Like, when that crazy Santa turns up at her house, my mind is, oh, what she should have done is phoned the police now and said, there's crazy Santa's at my house. That's exactly what wait- I thought, yeah. I thought it was going to go that way. And then be like, oh, he's killed my husband. But she didn't. She kind of like freaked and like. But it was so weird, the fact that there's this man outside trying to get in her house, and she's like scrubbing blood, planting <laughs> blood. Like, I don't understand. Don't seem bad. There's a crazy man outside, and you're like, oh god, gotta do this crime scene. Exactly. She saw him. She saw him at the door. He tried to attack her, 
And then she just goes, oh, I'm just going to shut the windows. It's fine. And then just carries on like normal. No, I, I quite like I quite like the fact that maybe she could have put a bit more hustle into having to clean up the crime scene as if she had genuinely panicked. But the fact that she couldn't just phone the police because she's got her husband's dead body in the living room was quite nice. I thought that worked really well with the fact mm. he's got a killer outside. It did, and it, yeah, I, I, I get it, it's kind of cool, but it just felt like, mm, you could have just got away with this a lot easier. Yeah, pro- she probably could have. I like the twist at the end, though. I thought the, the, the last line is absolutely brilliant. Well, the last line where I've let him in, I've, I've let him in, Mommy, where yeah. she's letting the serial killer because he's dressed as Santa Claus. Yeah. Now, can I just ask you a question, right? So this little brat has let in Santa, <laughs> and he dips along the way, Santa comes, starts massaging Joan Collins because he ain't strangling her. Put his hands on back. Where's this little brat gone? Why did she not come to help her mother? Maybe she's scared by this point and run off. Or maybe okay. she just maybe she has just looked and gone. Oh, Santa Claus is just massaging mum. Massaging mum. <laughs> I said, massaging mummy. <laughs> I was gonna. Yeah. I was just gonna do the same gag, um, but I couldn't work out how to make it work. As <laughs> <laughs> an opening story, it was. It, it had a. It had an interesting. It's punchy. Story. Yeah, very punchy. So after that, we're going to the second segment of the gentleman who is um, having an affair, planning on running off with his mistress. And they've got a house together, I assume. They go out in the car to get something and he has a final destination moment in that he sees his own death, wakes up, and that death actually happens. This segment was particularly impressive because um, for the time, I hadn't seen myself such a brutal crash like that before. I, I think the camera work on it was done really well. Yeah, I really enjoyed the crash scene it looked a bit like schlocky mm. but I, the close-ups of the people's faces as they were crashing um i thought that was quite cool it is that that was cool and to be fair i know it's only a short segment there's not a great deal to actually say on it but the the point of view stuff they do looks really good as he's stumbling around mm. very kind of serial killer point of view-esque and the actual reveal when he sees himself in the table is actually also really, really good. The makeup work, he generally, he generally looks like he's been dead for a while. The third segment was the one where we had, oh, this is the not only the most heartbreaking, oh, se- yeah. heartbreaking section in this film, it may be one of the single most heartbreaking things I've ever seen. I was on the verge of tears with this segment. It broke my fucking heart. I was nearly crying. I I adored this segment. It's my favourite segment. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. The, what's interesting is, um, from what I've read, Peter Cushing's wife had just recently died oh. before this. So it was like, it was pretty... Um, yeah, we're quite emotional. And then just on a on a on a very personal level, um, I got really emotional from the get go when he's got the kids in the house and he starts singing two little dicky birds sitting on a ro- on a wall because my dad used to sing that to me all the time. Oh. So I was like, 
I couldn't I couldn't believe how horrible they were to him. It was just the nicest man, and he was just radiating love and emotion and oh my god they were just so nasty it's a bit when they go in the house at the end as well and they've had this view of him and they go in like oh it's spotless and yeah, that's, they realize what absolute cunts they've been to the bloke we've not even explained what this segment is we just got into we've full-on gone into it um it's basically peter cushing um has recently lost his wife and he's communicating with her um through seancing or whatever you want to call it and um, he, sorry, go on, Chris. I was going to say he has a Ouija board on the go, which we love. Yeah. We love a Ouija board. He's um, beloved by the children in the area. They go around to his house and he gives them treats and stuff. And he's just the loveliest, nicest man. But for some reason, this dickhead of a neighbour wants his property, wants the land. So he um, comes up with a plan to get him out by just being fucking horrible to him by turning... Oh, it makes me so angry. By turning the parents against him, saying that the children can't go around his house anymore because he's filthy and lives in squalor. And... They they take his dogs, basically. They take his dogs. They make it look like his dogs have dug up the prize roses of the next-door neighbour, so his dogs are impounded. Which they have not. And then finally, on Valentine's Day, he sends a dozen cards to him with the cruelest poems in them just driving him out so eventually he hangs himself the moment when he gets some valentine's cards and he's kind of confused as to why he's got so many and then he starts reading them and the first one he's a bit like i don't really understand what you're saying i don't really get this message and then he reads another and another and the messages get worse and worse and i like literally could feel myself crumbling i was mm. like i hate this so much i mean i like i love it but i hate it yeah and do you remember that the way i am um, the hatred i have for marcia gay harden's character in the mist like this is like 10 times worse <laughs> i hate that man who's doing this to peter cushing so much but of course he gets what he deserves and peter cushing comes back as a zombie and uh yeah, I, I mean, that's a terrifying-looking zombie, I'm not going to lie. The, the old eye-hole thing is quite freaky and, again, quite reminiscent of the art you had at the time on horror books, like the Armada books and stuff, which, to me, are some of the most terrifying images to the point now I'm an, I'm nearly 40 years old and I still have to turn some of my horror books the other way around because the pictures freak me out so much. So I thought that zombie was quite scary, but, yeah, hands down, this was... The best. The best, yeah. It was amazing. Just for this segment alone, that's why I'm thinking it kind of pips it a bit. I mean, if, if I miss this segment alone is probably the best segment from any of the four films. Yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably agree with you. I think it's, it's ridiculously strong. But as I said, this is a film that has, apart from the last one, which goes on too, yeah, goes far on too long. Far too long. This is a film that has many strong stories as evidenced by the next one the monkey's paw story yes. be careful what you wish for <laughs> we wanted a podcast look what happened <laughs> so essentially for this one there's a guy who's just become bankrupt so they're looking to sell off their possessions in order to repay the people they owe because as he says he's an honest man he may have 
may have made hard decisions in business, but he's a fair man and not looking to repay his debts. And they, him and his wife find a weird statue that has an inscription for three wishes. So he unfortunately dies on his way into on his way to see his solicitor. But how he dies is actually how this gets completely screwed up mm. because he dies of a heart attack. And she wishes for him back at exactly the wrong point. Like the, the very first wish is that she wishes that she has lots of money, and then he he has a crash, is what we're told. Uh, what I thought was really funny is when the lawyer guy comes to tell the wife, and he's like, "Yeah, he's, yeah your husband's dead, but you're really rich." I'm like, "How insensitive!" <laughs> Then, and then she goes on to make that wish, and she's like, I want to wish him back alive. And he's like, he died, his body was mangled. He died in a crash. Yeah, so she makes that wish of, I want him to come back just before the how crash. he was the just crash. before. Somehow, like, they're really fucking quick, these morgue people, and they bring him over. <laughs> <laughs> no, he just died. <laughs> but they're like, um, oh, no, he died of a heart attack. And you're like, oh, shit, man. <laughs> shit. It's almost like a comedy, this segment. <laughs> because when he's laid in coffin, because obviously she said that I, I, I wish him back alive and he'd be alive forever. And he's just screaming in agony with all the embalming fluid that's running through his body. And then obviously she can't kill him because he's living forever. It is, but she's really good at it. I really enjoyed her performance. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh, Barbara Murray. Yeah. So she was really, really good at it. She was... this. Also brings us up with another another issue we noticed during the film. So the wraparound says that they all they all deserve to be there. So they've all done something that causes them to be in eternal damnation. No, Apart from him. Not this guy. This guy did nothing wrong. He did absolutely nothing wrong. It's completely his wife's fault, everything that happened. Yet he's the poor sucker ends up there. All the others deserved it. All the others were horrible people, but... This dude, nah, you're on the level. Yeah, yeah, it is bizarre that it's it's him who's the victim. Mm. Unless I think there was something that we don't know about. Maybe it was like the whole the way he lost his money. He probably kicked a cat. Let's tell that. Uh, possibly. Don't go kicking cats. What's the lo- oh? I like the last segment. The one that you're saying is too long. Yeah. The blind one. It's yeah. good. It's a good story. It just goes on for far too long. Yeah, so that's the story of the kind of ex-army officer who kind of takes over a home for blind, the blind, and he makes a lot of cuts on them, like like financially, um, so that he can live a better life with his dog. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sounds, sounds dodgy. I had a mundane psychic moment during this segment because um, when the film first started, in Joan Collins' section, she picks up a phone, which I genuinely thought was a dildo. And then in this end segment, the main guy, the blind guy, is the dude from Clockwork Orange whose wife got hit on the head by a giant dildo. So a mundane psychic oh. moment. Mundane psychic. Hmm. The issue, it's a whole yeah. the issue the, the issue with the run length, as you say, the cuts he's making, you could have done that in a couple of minutes. 
they go on they go on far too long going to see him saying oh you cut the heat in and then going back to him oh you cut the feet could have done that in, could have done that in a two minute scene mm. and what I did think was funny is the fact that when the heat in's cut off and they're like oh there's no heat in yet they're all still huddled over radiators there's no heat in <laughs> like what we huddling over and I thought that the whole concept at the end was really cool it kind of Kind of reminded me of like a jigsaw. Yeah, we, we said saw all, as well. Yeah. Oh, I'm setting up this kind of like maze, um, taking your vision away as well, uh, and that razor blade thing were really good. How, uh, and like how, did they, of, oh, how did they take his vision away? I I must have not caught I this. Mean, by turning the lights off. Oh, okay. So, I mean, in that in that respect, not physically like removing his eyesight. Just sorry, I didn't know if I missed something. That were all. No, I thought that was quite cool hmm. to be honest. That section, and like I said, that the whole film I really, really enjoyed. I'm genuinely surprised we've only just got around to watching it. And this is yeah. definitely of any pick that's been chosen by the listeners. I think this is my favourite pick. Really? Yeah. I mean, I think it's the one, but um. But then, yeah, I, I guess what I don't like is the final wraparound on this. So when we go back and they kind of like, like what happens now? And he's like, you can go. But they go off into nowhere, obviously, because they're dead. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the greatest tie together. I'll give it that. But I think the stories themselves, especially Peter Cushing's story, completely makes up for that. Yeah. So I guess... Like to wrap it up, it has got a lot of really, really strong. In fact, it is a very strong film. Mm. It's really good acting. It's fucking emotionally gut punching in parts. So I guess that's probably why you want to vote for this one to win the anthology episode. I wouldn't be surprised if. I mean, I I want ghost stories to win. Of course, I do. As I'm sure you want Doctor Terrace House of Horrors to win. As Chris wants. Trick or treat to win, but if this one, it would be absolutely no surprise to me. Yeah, we should probably point out that if this one does win, I've almost kind of won anyway because this is also directed by the same person who did Doctor Terrace House of Horrors and falls under that kind of Amicus Productions um, banner. So technically, like I win either way. That was our anthology episode. Thank you for listening. Um, we will be back with our results show next week. Uh, we'll get all our usual pictures and tweets out and such. But please do keep coming back to us with any suggestions you may have, uh, any feedback you may have. And please do not forget to like, subscribe and follow. Thank you for listening, guys. And we will see you next time. Bye now. Bye. Bye. Hi, it's Chris again. Thank you very much for listening to our episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Just to let you know, you can follow I Spit On Your Grades at both Facebook and Instagram at I Spit On Your Grades and also on Twitter at SpitGrades. And if you need to email us, you can reach us at electricpossums at gmail.com. If you could please rate, review and subscribe if you enjoyed the episode, we'd really appreciate it. Take care.